Hey, this is Jeff Gannon, and you're listening to the Focus Compounding Podcast. This is the podcast where Andrew and I talk general investing concepts. To learn about specific stocks I like, go to focuscompoundinggazette.com. That's focuscompoundinggazette.com, and enter your email. Once you enter your email, you'll start getting one free 2,000-word stock write-up a week. Andrew and I also manage accounts for clients. To learn more about our managed accounts, email Andrew at info at focuscompounding.com or text or call Andrew at 469-207-5844. Now here's Andrew with your regularly scheduled podcast. Welcome, welcome, welcome. How's everybody doing? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn, Focused Compounding Podcast, sitting alongside my co-founder, Mr. Jeffrey Gannon. Jeff, how's it going today? It's going very well, Andrew. How's it going with you? It is going well. I'm My face is not by the mic. It is going well. Thank you okay. so much. So in today's video, we are going to be going over how businesses can grow using other people's money and why that's good for shareholders. Yes. And we have a bunch of different topics to go over. I'm going to bet that this is the only podcast that's ever been done on this topic. Maybe. I'm throwing it out there. Okay. I'm throwing it out there. So right, we'll if you see. if you like that and you All like right. the work we're doing here, be sure to hit that subscribe button, thumbs this video up, and uh, leave us a rating and review that helps yeah. spread the word. Mm-hmm. Every time somebody leaves a rating and review, I check it often. It yeah. warms my heart. Good. So five stars. If five not, stars. please don't leave one. All right. <laughs> All right. So let's talk about AUM. Okay. And we're not. We don't even need to really relate it to us. Sure. You know, obviously we're in the investing business, but let's talk about other businesses. We've okay. been, um, you know, doing a lot of work on Truxton. Yeah. Truxton Trust and. They have uh, an asset management part to their business with sure. about a billion under management. It's a bank in mm-hmm. Nashville. So AUM, okay, as a, a, a way to grow using other people's money. Correct. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah. So, I mean, the advantages of it are that here we're talking about not having to put up shareholder money to do these things. So once you bring in money, um, you can take a relatively small fee. In the case of that company, it's usually around 1% or so of the assets under management. And then if those assets grow over time at a rate that's as high as GDP or higher, uh, potentially, depending on what they're invested in, um, then you're going to continue to make higher and higher revenue based on that for yourself. Um, And it's a way of doing it without having to put in a lot more uh, money that way. The assets will obviously grow faster relative to the number of people working at your company, to the number of branches that you have, to those sorts of things that are the actual expenses and the actual tying up of your own shareholders' capital. Yeah. So that's the advantage that you have. And um, really, this is all sort of, I mean, a way of float, I guess you could say. Yeah. I, no, mean, I mean, the way you could think about it, Like, I know the definition of float is like an insurance company, or we talked about deferred revenue and stuff like that, but right. it's kind of just using other people's money, looking for businesses where they have this source of float, I guess you could say, where they're using other people's money to really grow their business. Yeah. I mean, the easiest way to look at it is just, you know, um, do investors in, uh, um, you know, mutual funds or whatever, um, grow their assets as quickly as the companies themselves grow their earnings. Often the case in, you know, growth phases of those industries is no. Yeah. The companies that manage it actually grow it faster because they don't have to put in that additional money for it. Sure. Um, they, they bring in new clients and that's on top of what they already have. You know, yeah. as long as they're retaining the clients that they have, they're going to be able to make more money off of that. And they can do it with a relatively small fee, like we talked about when it when you have very large amounts of money that way. Yeah. yeah. So it's very possible that way. Whereas for each individual, individual client, it's a small percentage of the money, and uh, yeah, they're likely to keep it with them, and then you enjoy economies of scale from that. Sure. sure. Let's talk about float. And mm-hmm. obviously, float's sort of this buzzword in the investment industry, yeah, popularized Buffett. probably by Buffett, Buffett right? He's written a lot yeah. about the topic, mm-hmm. and um, I've tweeted out many times uh, documents that where Buffett, it's a, a 
almost like uh, I compiled a bunch of documents that mm-hmm. Buffett has written about, and it's it's pretty cool because you could just control F through there and just type in like Float, for example, and you could read everything he's ever written about Float. Yeah. So it's pretty interesting. So check out my Twitter uh, to get access to that uh, at Focus Compound. But Float, how do you typically think about Float? Yeah. So with Buffett, I think about Geico, um, which you learned about in the fifties. And that it generated float, and that it can make um, investments and get investment returns on the um, on policyholder money, basically, yeah. um, before it pays out. So there's this lag of time between when policyholders are paying premiums and then when payments are made for losses. But also things like blue chip stamps. He invested in a company that you know had um, stamps that uh, could be used to redeem things, and that would take a time where people saved the stamps and held on to them, and sometimes they'd be in drawers or whatever, and they wouldn't use yeah, them. Yeah, but yeah. also just that they would be there until they actually spent them and with modern day companies what you see a lot of that little form of float that for like retail related things is uh, gift cards right so they have a little float from gift cards where you have the um where people purchase the gift cards before they actually um end up using them in store redeeming them right do do you think uh, and talking about NACO, mm-hmm. do you look at, um, since they don't actually put up the capital for the unconsolidated mines yeah. but they technically own the mine right Correct, yes. do you think about that for as like a way of float because yeah. the returns, the returns on capital are basically infinite because they didn't have to put up any right. capital. Yes, you know? and that's exactly what I mean. So that's a great example because Thank I mean I, I wouldn't necessarily call it like float. You know that wouldn't be normal. Yeah, how I mean like the definition but, of like an insurance industry, it's not right. float, but it's a way to look for companies it's like the, situations. Like yes, that. it's the exact yeah. same advantage because we can see that they have a consolidated mine. Yeah, and I think the returns are very low there. They don't break out the returns, but I've said before I wouldn't be shocked if they were to tell us that they earn six percent on that on the consolidated mine. on the consolidated mine. But the unconsolidated ones are like hundred percent. Right, because they don't put the capital. But I'm yeah. just saying how bad the business can be. And you can also see just coal miners in general, how much debt they have on them. Mm-hmm. And that's because they need to have that much debt to um, fund mines. I mean, there's a ton of capital expenditure that you have. Yeah, yeah and float, full disclosure, we obviously understand that it's not a form of like float with insurance. All we're saying is to look for businesses where you have situations like this, where they're able to, I guess, um, enjoy the profitability from an asset or something that they didn't have to actually finance themselves or pay yeah, for themselves. Yeah, that's what you need is because, yeah. I mean, the reason why most businesses grow the rates that they do is because they have to put a lot of money back into the business instead of paying it out to you in dividends. Yeah. Using the example of NACO on those unconsolidated mines, you can see that 100% of earnings of those unconsolidated mines are paid out to the parent company, to yeah. NACO. Um, whereas, obviously, in an unconsolidated mine, they have to spend a lot. I mean, I think they're going to spend $20 million or something this year probably on um, buying up land and equipment and stuff to expand the mine that's consolidated. They have to put that mm-hmm. capital up. And I think they've sort of said, we won't do that again. And I think there's a good reason for not doing it again. Let's go to the banking industry. Yeah. Bank to Deposits. Yep. And you had said that uh, obviously deposits per share is one of the Mm -hmm. most um, important metrics that you look for when you're analyzing a bank. Yeah. So why is that? Uh, Because that's the entire earnings engine for um, what's going to drive earnings in for the shareholder. Yeah. So basically, um, you own a share in the business, and all the earnings that you're going to get eventually are from deposits, which are going to be used to fund some sort of asset, which will either be loans or will be securities that the bank will buy. Mm-hmm. And then the income off of that is what you'll earn as a shareholder. So you need them to, to you need to see the bank growing deposits, but you need to see them growing deposits per share is the really key number for sure. you. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I've talked before about banking. We did a whole thing about banking. I focus entirely. Really really on the um, the deposit side and how high quality that is and how low cost it is and basically looking at it as float. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Instead of thinking a lot about whether they can lend that money at some higher rate or whatever. If you just have very, very good deposits, uh, very cheap deposits, very stable deposits, then you can invest in the same sort of things that uh, anyone else 
can and you can earn much higher returns than they can because you're not using your own money. I mean, we don't own bonds and many people listening to this don't own bonds because they're too low returning. But if you didn't put up the money to buy the bonds, sure. someone else gave you the money. Wonderful. Um, then you know, <laughs> the, suddenly it's a business model that makes yeah. sense, and yeah. and banks are doing it. Where, I mean, banks but even are, when you when you say like that, it probably add puts a little bit more perspective on it for people, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, so banks have some non-interest expense, which is very significant. We've talked about that. So, like, they have to rent the place, yeah. um, and then they have to do all of that, and it's very big. And I talked a little bit about how that's a problem in Europe, for instance, where um, no matter how low rates go, rates can go negative. It doesn't matter. You still have those non-interest expenses that don't go any lower. It, you're, you're not cutting the bank's uh, rent when you're cutting, you know, overnight rates uh, for lending. But other than that, what they're doing is they're basically taking – you know, 10% of shareholder money, their money, and 90% depositor money, and that's how they're going out to buy a bond. So they're, you know, paying 10 cents of their own money for it and using 90 cents of other people's money for mm-hmm. it. And that's the whole idea of the business. Now, you have to get that other 90% at a cheap rate or sure. else it doesn't make sense. But as long as there's a spread on that other 90%, then you can be very successful, yeah. Mm-hmm. Cool. Um, what about customer prepayments? Yeah, well, customer prepayments, I did a um, podcast recently um, Which de- is a form of float, I guess you could say, in yeah. itself. Yeah. So I, I did uh, a podcast, DIY Investing. Yep. Yeah. And I talked about Necker on that one. And that's a uh, Norwegian company that we own. And um, it has customer prepayments. And actually, this is a big issue with people deciding how much actual net cash they have and sure, arguing about yeah. it. Um, because not all the cash is earned. Some of the cash is prepayments for things that might projects that might not be finished for in some cases it could be three or four so it's years. in the form of like a backlog it's a significant backlog yeah. yeah they have a significant backlog of three or four years but it's huge because it allows you to earn very high returns on capital obviously um if you didn't have that then you'd have to finance things yourself but it just completely changes the business and that was what i was kind of talking about on that podcast which is that um you know he was asking uh you know, is it a good business? It's cyclical and all this. And really what I was saying is it's just critical that their customers prepay for it. Uh, without that, it would be a very different business. And uh, frankly, we probably wouldn't have bought it if it wasn't for the customer prepayments. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's kind of, I guess, the common theme in a lot of companies that we focus on is sort yes. of, I mean, you take NACL, for example, where they're not actually putting up the capital to build mm-hmm. the mines or whatever, uh, but they're able to actually, they technically own it. But then in the same situation with Necker, where they're not, uh, where they have a, a huge backlog of prepayments from their customers and stuff like that, they could they could use to finance their business. Yeah, I mean, I, sometimes I have a difficulty uh, explaining like my style or what's particular about it or something. But I would say probably what we do more than anyone else is focus on situations like that, like float. Definitely situations where companies don't have to put up their own capital. Mm-hmm. I'd say you know this idea of other people's money. That's probably the thing that we focus on more than anyone else. I would guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I think that's great. Uh, so I guess so. We just did uh, customer prepayments. We we could talk about deferred revenue, which I mm-hmm. guess is along the same lines. Yeah. So deferred re- revenue. The classic examples are like subscription type things, but yeah. you see it in technology companies, you know, um, Microsoft and stuff all the time. So if you ever see deferred revenue on the current liabilities, it's a form of float. Yes, it's a form of float. So and that customer paid up, or I guess you could say paid in advance Correct. for something. Yeah, they paid in advance for some service that's provided. In many cases, the service that's provided could be something like a subscription, even if it's a print subscription or a journal subscription or something, even back when those things were all done in hard copy and stuff like that. That's still relatively cheap, you know, actual providing of it. Um, it ha- usually has very high fixed costs, and then just adding one subscriber doesn't cost much. So not only is it a um, form of getting the money ahead of time, 
but you're getting the money ahead of time and there's very little expense that has to be done throughout the year right so like i gave example of microsoft or something um it you know licensing some more uh, copies of uh, an operating system or yeah. of um uh of office or whatever doesn't mm-hmm. really cost them much of anything yeah so you know, uh, a good example of that is we own OTC markets and they have a significant amount of deferred revenue from being paid in advance for services they provide. And for the most part, those services would cost exactly the same, whether there were 95 people using it, 100 people using it, 500 people using it. I mean, there's some sales stuff um, that's very different in getting it originally, but it doesn't really matter how many people are on the platform for how much it costs them, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, accounts payable? Yeah, so uh, and we just we did just go over this. Uh, go watch our past video if you haven't on the balance sheet, where we went over a lot of these line items and talked a little bit more in depth about them. We're referring to Apple when we're speaking about this, but yeah, yeah. so accounts payable. So accounts payable is really important. So this is where we talk about like the networking capital cycle and all yeah. that stuff. Yeah. So uh, this sometimes gives you some indication of one the company's business model when we talk about things like receivables, inventory, accounts payable, crude expenses, um, and also, sort of their um, at times their position, their bargaining power, basically. Because the thing is, everyone would like to be paid as fast as possible, sure, yeah, and to pay as slowly as possible, yeah, sure. And if well, they, it's kind of like Amazon, for example, right? yeah, yeah, exactly. And if they don't do that, because um, you pay up front, and then they don't have to pay their. Um, I guess, what do you say, vendors or... Yeah. Fast? Yeah. yeah. Sure. And so th- that creates a situation where you can have very low margins and still um, make a lot of money because your margins are low, but your turns are incredibly fast. You know, mm-hmm. the example people always give in the past was Dell, um, where basically mm-hmm. it was like paying for things after it had already collected the money for it. It was paying for the parts that you were getting basically after it had... Um, uh, after you'd already ordered it and paid for it, um, which is a hugely different business than what was before then, which yeah. is like actually putting together a computer, putting it in a store. You know, that was what it was before then. Um, so usually it shows some bargaining power uh, that the company has, and that's important. And a lack of it uh, that you can't pay slowly um, does indicate sometimes they don't have a lot of bargaining power. We, we talked about this in, um, I think I talked about it in the podcast on Omnicom. I know it's in the Omnicom report. Um, there was an it, it was a bit it's a big issue in advertising because advertising has a situation where they have float of a few weeks basically so they're being um, they're they're collecting payments from customers before um, they're paying for the purchases that they make on behalf of the customers so that's huge because uh, usually most companies are doing this on their own behalf right so they have a little bit of float from doing this with the working capital cycle. But in the case of an agency, they're doing it in a huge amount because they're doing it on behalf of another customer. Mm-hmm. And then they're, what they're left with is just a small fraction of that, right? Their commission. So it's sort of like if you imagine a realtor or something, right? Imagine if you were like actually paying the realtor for uh, a house or something, yeah. you know what I mean? And there was a spread between the time when they uh, collected money from you for the house and then when they gave it to the Wonderful. other person for it. That would be pretty good <laughs> business for them, right? Yeah. And that's part of the idea for advertising agencies. And there was some push by big advertisers, big brands to um, do away with that, basically to be able to pay slower. Um, And when that happened in one case, which we talked about in the report, um, like four of the five biggest ad uh, agency holding companies in the world just didn't show up to pitch for the idea or anything, even though it was a billion dollar account or whatever. So, um, you know, the idea being that 
they're we're sa- they were saying, look, we're not your bank and we're not going to finance you. Yeah. Um, but what they really want is for you to finance them. That's part of the business model. It's always been the business model, and that's what they need to make it successful. Without that, advertising would be a lot. An advertising agency would be a lot less attractive business. When you think of businesses where they're sort of self-financed by their customers, mm-hmm. what comes to mind? What type of businesses uh, other than banks? Sure. I mean, anything with subscription is going to be that way, but some things with backlogs, like we talked about. Mm-hmm. So some, especially things like that, that also don't, the other issue we actually haven't talked about much is you, this is just getting the financing of getting other people's money, but it's also an issue of how much money you need. So the best case is when you have a lot of other people's money and you're in an industry where there's very little need for capital. Sure, yeah. So that's why something like asset management business or a software business or an engineering business works really well. If you have the same thing in a cement business, it wouldn't matter as much because there's still so much need for capital. Mm-hmm. NACO's a really weird example because there's so much need for it in mining, but the accounting there is really complicated because what they're really doing is they're just contracting for them to do it for them, but because the way the accounting works, it looks like they're the, the customer is putting up all this money, yeah. right? Because technically they're the one who owns it, um, the contract miner. But um, I think that in general, you need things where like, uh, so engineering is a good example, but it's all, but I'm saying that it's not just because they have like backlog because like um, shipyards have significant backlog where sometimes people will actually pay them in advance. Mm-hmm. It doesn't help that much because it's so um, asset intensive that they usually still have really low returns, even when they have a significant amount of like prepayments or something, it just doesn't help. Got it. What about deferred tax liabilities? Well, so this is like Buffett, right? Mm -hmm. This is the idea of, you know, he says that's like one break that you get is that um, the government is basically loaning you money Mm -hmm. um, in a sense uh, that you don't have to pay the taxes until you sell, right? Uh And that used to matter a lot more to Berkshire when corporate tax rates were a lot higher and, Mm -hmm. you know, all those sorts of things. Um, I was on a a podcast, DIY Investing, where I talked about that, about turnover and stuff. And... um, I said, you know, like, um, certainly there's harm in having 100% turnover, and there's probably a lot of harm in having 50% turnover. I wasn't so sure. What it, type of turnover? What are you uh, your about? shares. Got it. So selling your shares, your stock that you have. Oh, so you're, so you're speaking about the, the shares outstanding. Yeah. No, no, no. Uh, if you're investing money. So like Berkshire investing money, um, an individual listening to this investing money. Um, you so know, the turnover in the portfolio. Because it's going to trigger taxes yeah. faster. Mm-hmm. So so first of all, obviously, if there's a difference between short-term and a long-term capital gains, then that's harmful. Um, and so obviously, you want to time that so that you're making sales in the right way. Efficiency. You know, in terms yeah. of a, a year and a day or whatever later and based on what those things are. But so it's almost always going to be a bad idea to sell within a year. Um, you know, depending on tax treatment in, in all different countries, sure. this is all different. Yeah. Um, but the bigger issue is like, okay, beyond that, what turnover is most helpful? And I said in that podcast, I wasn't sure if like, I'm not sure at all the turnover below 10% would be helpful because the harm is that you own something that is no longer as attractive. So there's always that trade-off. We did that where we talked about like people trying to save money on taxes, mm-hmm. not taking a, a uh, not selling something and taking a gain um, because they don't want to pay the taxes is not a good idea. But for some place like Berkshire that needs to soak up a lot of capital permanently, mm-hmm. it's a very smart way of doing it. Um, but you have to invest in things that you plan to be in for the very long term. So. That sort of thing that we're talking about is only going to work in cases where it's like um, very good businesses and yeah. things like that. And so that's the tax inefficient part of like a Ben Graham type strategy. Yeah, you know, you you spoke on that podcast as well, and we'll link to it down the in okay. the description and definitely check it out. It's DIY Investing, mm-hmm. and he has a website as well. But you had spoken about how um, you know 
for example, if somebody owns a stock and you're up 100% on it, now they feel like even if they think it's still cheap, they feel like they have to sell some, right? Yes. And now the idea should not be to make 100%. The idea should be to go into it to own a business that you feel like you could own for a very long time, right. even more than 100% or whatever, you know? Yeah. And the way to think about it in terms of like the most efficiency yeah. is always to think in terms of from this point forward what you expect it to return. Yeah. So if you're looking at a stock, I mean, we've sold stocks before. If I sold a stock and it was like, well, I think it's only going to return 5% a year from now on, mm-hmm. then it's smart to sell it and take the taxes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's not smart to do it if you say it goes up 100% and you're selling something that you think is going to return 15% a year from here. You it, know? Well, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. I mean, we had obviously asked that a lot about NACO. Yeah. So we're, when are you going to sell? It's like, well, it's right. actually still cheap relatively right. to what you think. Yeah. yeah. So you just have to weigh the idea of taking the tax hit versus the idea of what you expect the future return in it to be. And so usually with a really good business, that allows you to hold it unless it's an absurd price. But yeah. even in the case of Warren Buffett, to be honest, he should have sold Coke. I was going to say, he, he, sold he, wish, he, he, he should have. He should have. But that's not what he does. But even then, I can go through the math and say, look, he should have sold those mm-hmm. things then in the in the late 90s, mm-hmm. right? But it's rare. Other than that, it hasn't happened in many cases. Like, he's owned stocks that there was never a point where he had to sell um, for that reason. Now, early in his career, he would have, though, because you have more ideas than money, and yeah. it makes mm-hmm. sense to switch into things that have higher and higher returns. Yeah, you he was know. flipping his, turno- or his turnover of the portfolio. Yeah, the was partnership, he made like 30% a year, and his personal money, he probably made 50% for a few years there so um in those cases it makes sense to take the tax hit quickly yeah. because you're going into something that the returns are so much higher but you can do the math on that and people can figure it out yeah mm-hmm. cool well that is the end of today's video i want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with mr jeffrey and myself be sure to check out his gazette uh, it's a weekly email that goes out you will get access to our watch list There's yeah it's a watch list there. so just yeah. so everyone knows it's been changed a little bit it's a watch list of our socks 10 uh, ideas on it and also has a little blurb about some of them yeah so it's basically stocks that we're looking at they're all overlooked and uh they're things that i might write up in the future i will write up in the future yeah, on so the paid site yeah. which you won't get but you will get the watch list so you can go and, and there's some people i mean for example when i was listening to your um podcast with trey and he's yeah. not even a, a member right. of focus compound but he <laughs> looks at all the companies that <laughs> are on the list is, uh, he's on yeah. the list and he just goes and does his own yeah, due diligence because he asked me about a couple of them yeah one so of them his company was on number one for like three months and yeah. you don't own it and i don't own it that's correct yep. yeah so listen to that podcast and you can find out what was uh that stock that was on the list at the top for a while and i didn't uh own it and didn't write it up but it was on the watch list yep. yeah so if uh to get on that list go to focus if you're watching on youtube hit that subscribe button uh thumbs this video up that helps spread the word I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with Mr. Jeff and myself, and we will see you in the next podcast. Hey, this is Jeff Gannon, and that was the Focus Compounding Podcast, the podcast where Andrew and I talk general investing concepts. To learn about specific stocks I like, go to focuscompoundinggazette.com. That's focuscompoundinggazette.com, and enter your email. Once you enter your email, you'll start getting one free 2,000-word stock right up a week. Andrew and I also manage accounts for clients. To learn more about our managed accounts, email Andrew at info at focuscompounding.com or text or call Andrew at 469-207-5844. Thanks for listening.